2 Peter chapter 3. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you have some kind of electronic device-powered Bible, so you can flick or scroll there. And no shame if you need to use a table of contents or a search bar uh, on your way. And now that you're, well, you're making your way to 2 Peter, I'm going to hold your finger there if you're in a, if you're in an old school Bible, uh, and turn to Matthew chapter 24. I, w- I actually want to, by way of introduction, talk about Jesus, talk about the words of Jesus. So again, I just asked you to turn to two passages. Go ahead and use that table of contents if you need to, that search bar. Jesus said things that shocked people. He said things that shocked and dismayed people, that amazed people, that irritated people. He said things that got people's attention, wowed them. Have you been shocked by Jesus lately? Have you been shocked by Jesus? Have you been wowed by him lately? I think it's an important question to ask. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, has Jesus impressed you lately? Because if he hasn't, what's going on is what the Bible calls a, a hardening of the heart, a desensitization to God in the way that he works in you. I'm saying that because I'm actually a person who goes through this on a fairly regular basis where I find myself not super impressed, not wowed, not shocked by Jesus when I read his word. And you might say, well, it's because you read it so many times and all that. But you know what? God's word is, is shocking. It should be penetrating. So if it isn't to you, uh, that's not a great thing. So I would encourage you, no show of hands, just to take a moment right now and in your heart of hearts, just say, Lord, uh, he's talking about me right now. I, uh, I haven't been shocked by you. I haven't been impressed by you. Um, please do that for me right now. So just go ahead and ask the Lord to do that. Now in this passage, Jesus says something that is shocking, just by way of context. Jesus is in the last week of his life uh, in this passage. He's told his disciples, I'm on my way to Jerusalem where I'm going to be arrested, tried, executed, buried, and then raised from the dead. And that didn't really shock the disciples because it just went right over their head. They just didn't get it. Just didn't get it at all. So Jesus is in Jerusalem on his way to do all of this, and his disciples come to him. Chapter 24 of, of Matthew, verse one. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So Jesus is leaving the temple and his disciples come up to him, hey Lord, hey, check, oh, look at the temple. Look at these buildings. Oh, isn't that impressive? Now, now the temple of that time was very impressive. It was like one of the wonders of the world. It would have been amazing. You would have been amazed seeing it. You know what they're really saying, though, when they're saying, hey, Jesus, isn't this temple impressive? It's not that he'd never seen it before. What's going on is in their minds, they believe Jesus is Messiah. They've already, Peter's confessed that in chapter 16. They all agree with it. But in their mind, what Messiah means is that he's gonna come and he's gonna rule the entire world from Jerusalem going to rule the whole world, which means the people who are on top, which in their world is Rome, their oppressors, are going to be down at the bottom, and they're going to be at the top. So what they're really saying to Jesus is, hey, hey, Jesus, check out the office space, you know. 
This is where they're going to rule because they're a part of his entourage. They're going to be in his cabinet. They're going to be the, the chancellor, the exeger, or the secretary of state or whatever. That's what they have in mind. This is where we're going to work. Isn't it cool where we're going to, the building we're going to be able to work out of Jesus? What does Jesus say? Verse two. But he, Jesus, answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be uh, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Talk about a buzzkill. <laughs> it's like Jesus just went and went, pops their bubble. Oh, you, you think you, you're impressed by this temple, this beautiful building. You think you're gonna reign from here. Well, guess what? This building's gonna be leveled. And it is, I've been there. It's just a flat, it's flat. Well, there's a pagan shrine on there now, but, um, but the temple is gone temple's gone. What you thought was stable, what you thought was going to stay here, what you think will remain is vanishing. Gone. It's going to go away, guys. It's going to go away. Pops their bubble. And in their minds, this can only mean one thing that Jesus is talking about, the end of the world. So they ask him in uh, verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Jesus, tell us about the end of the world. Tell us about the end of the world, okay? He burst our bubble, so let's let's talk what's actually gonna happen. Now I'm not gonna read the entire passage because there's just too much there. I'm gonna summarize to the point I really wanna get to. So what Jesus tells them is the end of the world is gonna come and it, and it will be preceded by a whole bunch of signs. There will be roar, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and fires and betrayals and political upheavals. It's gonna be crazy, it's gonna get worse. There's gonna be this massive tribulation that's gonna happen. Then he says, uh, skip down to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I mean, talk about what you think is stable. I mean, you think the temple was gonna remain. You know, the, the, the sun, the same sun, the same moon that you look at, do you know Socrates saw that moon and Aristotle saw that moon and uh, everyone that you remember can think of of history. They've been there. Talk about security, stability, it's gonna, it's gonna remain. You know every morning the sun's gonna come up in the east and go down in the west. You know the sun is gonna follow its cycles. Jesus is saying, actually, it's not. What you think is stable is gonna come to an end. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's a quotation from Daniel chapter seven. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to another. So he's gonna come, the, the elements, sun, moon, and stars, all that's gonna be shaken, but he's gonna be here solid and he's gonna bring his people to himself. Verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you will know that he is near at the very gate. So what he's saying here is uh, you've seen the signs 
through vegetation around you. I, I have a, there's a fig tree right by where I live. And I can tell you in the winter, it looks dead. It looks dead in the winter. But come spring, you'll start to see these green shoots come out. These leaves start coming out. And I know every year there's going to be figs coming in a few months. That's what he's saying is all, all these signs that I've told you are going to happen, I've given you enough to be prepared to know it's coming. So look for it. That's what he's saying. Um, Verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Did you catch that again? What you think is that heaven and earth, moon, sun, stars, water, earth, pass away. But Jesus' words will not pass away. By the way, when he speaks of this generation, you know, that could mean, uh, you know, there's like the baby boomer generation and there's the generation X and the millennials and Z and all that sort of stuff. Could mean that. Could mean this group of people who were born between this decade and that one. More likely though, because it hasn't happened yet, you know, more likely he refers to generation as this whole generation of fallen humanity. He does this earlier in the gospel where he says, oh, wicked generation, how long am I to be with you? He's just referring to humanity in this age, our constant resistance and rebellion with, uh, against him. And so what he's saying is, you know what's going to remain? Human beings and his word. That's what's going to be there. The human race will not, it's not like God's going to come in judgment and there's nobody around like crickets. Where everybody go? No, like humans are going to be there. Humans are going to be there for judgment. But his word will not pass away. This is the background that I wanted to, to put us in for 2 Peter chapter 3. So go ahead and turn back to uh, 2 Peter. Now, uh, I didn't mention, Jesus goes on. I would encourage you to go back and read Matthew 24 tonight, the rest of the chapter. Because Jesus says other things. He says his word is going to remain forever. So be ready, right? He already said that. Then he says it's going to come quickly. It's going to come suddenly and unexpectedly. You know, he talks about, he talks about uh, there will be two men out in a field working. One's poof, gone. The other one's still there. Two women in a house making bread. Poof, one's gone. The other one's there. That's how quick it's going to happen. And he also mentions another thing. He says some people aren't going to believe it. They're going to act like this won't happen, and they'll just go on with life as though it'll never happen. He says, don't be like those people, be ready. Okay, now it's 2 Peter. This is, you know, 30, 40 years later, something like that. And hopefully Pip has, has taken you through the letter to see that there are some of these people already there in the church. They're denying the claims of Jesus. They're denying the word of God. They're saying, ah, you don't really need to do that. You don't really need to do this or that. They're very much uh, licentious, you might say. And Peter says, get rid of these people. They're like, they're like clouds without water. They're just going away. They're, they're breeding confusion in your midst. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Now, we don't actually don't know if what he's referring to is 1 Peter and this is 2 Peter. It could be a letter that's totally lost. Scholars debate it. It's one of the ways in which theologians are able to make a living because, you know, uh, 
It's, it's not like you're getting into a really lucrative profession if you get into theology. So um, that's debatable. doesn't really matter for our purposes. He says, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, just a preview before we actually, like, I'm going to go through and I'm going to read this whole thing, but I want to tell you where we're going first. And then we'll go there, and then I'll tell you where we went, and so hopefully it'll stick in your mind, right? Okay, so what he, where he's going to go is he's, he's going to say there are people who are denying that judgment is coming. There will be a denial of judgment. And then he's going to say, but judgment is most certainly coming, most certainly will come. And then he's going to talk about how to prepare for the coming judgment, okay? Those are the three things he's going to get into. Now, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. In the Greek, that's a little bit complicated. What he really means to say there is, I want to help clear up your thinking. There's confusion, right? There's other, these other people here teaching, teaching these falsehoods. So he wants to clear up their thinking, stirring up the mind, getting those creative juices flowing, and clearing out the garbage. That's his purpose. That's what he's getting at. Okay, uh, verse 2. Sorry, it's hard to... Hard to see up here. Verse two, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. I'm just gonna go ahead and read the entire passage just so you know, and then we'll work our way through it. Verse four, they will say, these scoffers, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. 
but grow in, gr- in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Okay, there's a whole chapter there. And obviously, if I were to unpack this super slowly, it would take us till about Thursday. So uh, we're going to do a sprint. We're going to do a sprint here, okay? Are you ready? Okay, we've got to warm up here. All right, going back to the beginning, once again, stirring up your mind. I want to clarify your thinking about this. And the first thing he talks about is the denial of the judgment. And he talks about these people. He calls them scoffers. You guys know what a scoffer is? A scoffer is somebody who, who balks, who doesn't take others seriously. <laughs> Come on, that's a scoffer, right? You might know a scoffer. I like to call scoffers people who quote the year to you. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this happen. I went to a seminary that's um, decidedly, let's say, progressive um, in, their, in their political and social leanings, and I heard this all the time. Come on, it's 2015, right? You ever heard, have you ever heard somebody say that? They're not actually engaging in you. What they're doing is they're quoting the year to say, like, what you're saying is passe. So, you know, I talk about judgment or I talk about something that the Bible says, and they're like, come on. That's so pre-enlightenment. Oh, that's some other time. Oh, oh, you can't be serious. That's what scoffing is. That's what scoffing is, is actually not taking seriously, not actually engaging in what's going on. And you can see this is what, this is what these guys are doing. What's their, what's their main beef, right, these, these scoffers? What are they saying? Well, first of all, they're saying in verse, it's, I think it's the latter, latter half of verse Oh, no, no, it's verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Come on. Where's the promise of his coming? Now, you know what this, you know what this is about, right? Hey. Hi. <laughs> okay. We've acknowledged the, the, the child um, and that he's cute. Um, so, back to this. I'm getting distracted now, even. <laughs> So the scoffers come and they say, Where is the, where's the day of the Lord's coming? I mean, come on. Did the Lord really say that? You recognize what, what Peter's actually doing? He's actually echoing what's happened in Genesis 1 in the garden. You guys remember that story, the Garden of Eden? God told Adam and Eve, don't eat this fruit. There's one fruit that I'm asking you not to eat of. And then the serpent comes to Eve and and he says, why don't you eat the fruit? And she says, well, the Lord said no. And he says, oh, did God really say that? Did God really? You won't really die. So when you hear this, you should be going, red light, warning, warning, warning. Uh, that's, that's a problem. They're questioning the word of God. What, what Jesus said will stand forever, even though heaven and earth pass away. So here's, here's your first warning. Their, their question, oh, where's the promise of God? Okay. Second thing they say, ever since, this is their logic behind that, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, right? You know what? Things don't really change. Things don't really change. You know, you can predict what's going to happen from one day to the next. The sun is going to rise and the east is going to go down in the west. Nothing really changes. Come on. So how does, how does Peter respond to that? He says in verse 5, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So he says, oh, you, you want to go back to Genesis. 
Okay, you want to go back to the beginning of creation and say things have been going on as they, as they always have, right? You want to say that? Okay, let's go talk about it. You know what happened at the beginning of creation? God spoke, and things came into existence. It's by the word, of, he says that, by the word of God, creation came into existence. He says, by the word and through water, actually, he says. Did you notice that? He says, through water. If you remember the story in Genesis, it talks about this watery chaos and the, the Spirit of God hover, hovering over that watery chaos like, a, like a, a, a dove hovering over their nest. And God speaks, and out of the water, the, the, the earth comes up out of the water. So it's through, through the Word of God and through water that creation happened. And then he says in verse uh, six that by means of these, the word, uh, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, right? So it's by God's word that creation happened. It's by God's word and through that water that the land appeared. And it's by God's word that the flood came and destroyed everything, that judgment came through the flood. Notice the consistency of God's word. Jesus says his word will stand forever, and here we have again God's word. Do you know what's keeping the universe together? You know what's keeping the elements from flying apart? What's keeping gravity going? It's the word of God. Actually, God sustains everything by his word. Actually says that in the New Testament, sustaining all things by the word of his power. What we call gravitation is just a scientific description of what it looks like when God says, okay, bodies, masses relate to one another in this way consistently. But it's by the word of God that everything is happening. So all it takes is a word of God for nothing to go, and there's something. It only takes a word of God for judgment to come to change all that consistency. Things haven't been going along the same ever since creation. God spoke and something happened that never happened before. That's all it takes. It only takes one. It only takes one time. So that's what Peter says. You want to talk about creation? You want to talk about going on? By God's word, judgment has come once. came through the word and through water. And it's coming again, he says in verse 7, but by the same word... The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So here we go. Again, the word of God, it was word and water before. Now it's going to be word and fire. It's not hard for God to do. You just got to say the word and judgment happens. So this like, oh, things have always been going the way, the, the way that they have in the past kind of falls flat. Just because God wants it to be consistent at one moment doesn't mean it won't in the next. Now there's another, hidden, there's another hidden argument that they have that he addresses in verse eight. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. What's he getting at there? It doesn't seem to follow. I think he's, he's getting at a, another sort of implicit argument that, well, why is it taking so long? Why does it take so long? If God was gonna judge the world, why hasn't he already? You guys relate to that? Anybody think God has punctuality issues? No, we're all too pious here. Well, except for you. There's one honest person in here. We, we think God has punctuality issues. 
that's what, the, that's what the scoffers would say too. Interesting that he brings this up. See, what happens, it's interesting too what, what happens, what we do with data, right? The same, the same facts, the same collection of data has to be interpreted, right? That's why when people say, science says blah, 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 it's actually not true. Science doesn't say anything, actually. Science does not say anything. Scientists say things. They interpret data and try and tell us what it means. And right now, if you last time I checked in terms of quantum mechanics, you have a whole bunch of people throughout the world who are looking at the exact same data, and there's at least 10 different interpretations for what it means. So science doesn't talk. Scientists talk. Um, Anyway, what you do with this data? It seems like God is late. Seems like he's taking too long, right? So what do you do with that? Well, on the one hand, you could go, well, God is late because either he's not there, or he doesn't care, or he's in some way deficient or incompetent, right? That's, that's one option that you could take for, uh, for interpreting the data. God appears to be late. But there's another option. There's another option. And he, he mentions it right here in verse 9. The Lord is not slow. Well, here, let's go back to verse eight. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. You know, with the, with the Lord, he doesn't measure time the way that we do. And in truth, we don't measure time the way that other people do too. I, I remember a friend from Africa telling me, uh, God gave you guys in the West watches so you could keep track of time and he gave us in Africa time so we didn't need watches because they're, they're just not worried about how much time is going by. But think about, think about this. When you were like 10 and you had to wait 10 minutes for that marshmallow or 10 minutes for X-Men to come on, it took forever. You're like, come on. Or like how long it took to get to the end of the school year. You know, it's like, it's right now, right? October. You're like, come on, June, it takes forever. And now you're like, you blink an eye and three years go by, right? What is it like for, for God? He's like, he doesn't measure time the way that we do, okay? Second thing, verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know what he's saying? What he's saying in both of these things is that God is not like us. That's one of the key lessons from the Bible, especially from the Old Testament. God is not what we think God is. When when humanity tends to imagine God, we imagine like the best possible human, best possible human, and then we like magnify that by a billion, billion, billion infinities and we're like, that's God. No, that's not God. God is not like you and I, okay? It, it only goes, it, the direction only goes one way, okay? We might be like God because he's made us in his image, but he's not like us, okay? It, o- it only goes that one way. And here's how God is not like us here. When someone is late or delayed, what we think is incompetence, irresponsibility, or you don't really care. How come you can't really make it? You don't got it together, or maybe you're ignorant. Maybe you, you, are, you mean well, but you just don't know. He's saying the alternative is that when God is slow or late, what that means is that he is patient. God's slowness, God's incompetence shows, well, God's, God's slowness does not 
reveal incompetence or deficiency in him. It reveals mercy in him. You know what that means? That means the longer he waits, the greater we see his mercy. God could have had this day come a thousand years ago, you know. Could have had this come a thousand years ago. But he didn't. And at least one of the reasons why is because he wanted you. Every single one in this room. And none of us would be here if he would have done that. God does not see time the way that we do. Notice the sovereignty of God in this as well, right? God is so wise, he knows, you know, uh, if, has, has anybody here ever done baking? Even if you baked one thing, right? When you bake something, you have to put a bunch of ingredients together in a particular way, right? Like sometimes you gotta do all the, all the dry ingredients and then all the liquid ingredients and then you put them together at the right time and do that. One of the ingredients, they don't call it an ingredient, but one of the ingredients is time in that oven, right? If you don't get that ingredient right, well, then you have a, a, a ball of mush, you know, or you have something that's not, not edible. It's too, it's overdone. God knows exactly when the earth is done. He knows when that fruit is ripe for the plucking. In fact, he knows that so well. There's a story in Genesis, you could go back and read about it, where God tells Abraham, hey, I'm gonna give you and your ancestors this land, but just so you know, um, your descendants are actually gonna leave here and they're gonna go to Egypt and they're gonna be slaves for 400 years. And here's, here's the interesting thing. God's reasoning for that is the people who live in this land aren't wicked enough to receive judgment. So I'm gonna give them another 400 years to get their act together and they won't, and then I'll bring your people out to judge them. God waited another 400 years for them to get that bad. That's what he did in the flood. He knew it's that bad. We aren't there yet, necessarily. Maybe we are. I don't know. The Lord could come like a thief, he says. But he's waiting because he is patient and desires that all should come to repentance. The longer he waits, the more we should see his patience and his love and his mercy and his grace. By the way, you might be, uh, I mean, I see you guys sitting here, and I don't have a doubt that at least one or two or several people sitting in here, you have been waiting for God to do something in your life. You've been waiting for a long time. Probably what feels like too long. What I've just been talking about might feel like cold comfort. But what this actually tells us is that God knows what's going on. It's not that God doesn't care. It's not that he isn't there. And it's actually okay to say, how long, O Lord? Read the Psalms. If that's you, if you're waiting for God to do something, I'd encourage you to read the Psalms. Psalm 13 is a good place to start. That starts out with, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? God can take that kind of questioning, that kind of honesty. So I'd encourage you to stay in there because the Lord knows exactly what he is doing. He doesn't want to take the bread out too soon. He doesn't want it to be a ball of mush. 
He wants it to be just right. And I'm not going to pretend like I know. I don't have the mind of God. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not going to pretend to know why you're having to wait. But I can tell you it's not because God's abandoned you or he doesn't love you. He has his own reasons. So that's, that's it on the, uh, on the scoffers. Denial of judgment. Now, now let's work our way into the reality of judgment. What, what is actually going to happen? Well, first of all, I just wanted to point out again, I've said this once, but in case anybody missed it, judgment happens by the word of God. Remember that in verse uh, seven. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire. It happens by the word of God. And this was talked about. Remember at the beginning where he says, I want to I stir up your mind so that you remember the sayings of the prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets who talked about this day called the day of the Lord. We're talking about this, judgment day, the end of the world. And those Old Testament prophets talked about the word of God bringing about that judgment by his word. Now, it's interesting he, uh, how this is going to happen. He describes it in verse uh, 10. He says, but the day of the Lord, once again, that's a quotation from, the, they call it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works uh, that are done on it will be exposed. Fascinating, he says that it will come like a thief. Go back and read Matthew 24. It's the exact same language Jesus used. He talks about the um, heavenly bodies being burned up and dissolved. Isn't that what, that's, what, that's what Jesus said would happen too. Maybe it's because Peter was there and he heard Jesus say it, and he's just continuing the, the same teaching. These things are gonna dissolve. They're gonna go away. It's gonna be sudden. It's gonna be swift. It's gonna be unexpected. It's gonna be like a thief, he says. And so he's gonna say, get ready here in a minute. All that appears to be stable is going to collapse. You guys notice that? Like, think about, (laughs) what do you hang on to that, that feels stable? Is it your home, your routine, your job? What are the things that you, that, that you just count on happening the next day? Like a gazillion things, right? You probably go at least once a week to the grocery store to get groceries, and you count on them having whatever it is you need there, right? Well, lately we've got supply chain issues, so we're getting a little, we're, we're not always having it as much as we used to, but what do you hang on to for stability? The very earth that they drive that, those, that food across to get it into your store is inherently unstable without the word of God sustaining it. It's all gonna go. I mean, I know this is uncomfortable. This isn't, this isn't up. Uh, if this was a popularity contest talking about judgment and the end of the world and things burning up, it's not exactly gonna increase your PR, right? I don't think that's exactly what, maybe that's why Ian had me here. No, he doesn't seem like that. Ian, Ian would be happy to do this himself, I'm sure. But anyhow, the, uh, the judgment is coming, and he talks about it being burned up with fire. Now, that might be actually, like, literally true. 
Earth burns up with fire, sun and moon. I mean, scientists today will, will say that's one possibility at the end of the universe is what they call heat death. Everything, everything burns up and melts. That might be true, might be literally, literally true. It also could be that fi- fire is a metaphor very often in scripture for, for purifying, for things being purified. So it could be that the elements are actually entirely consumed. It could be that what is consumed is all, everything that's impure and not of God. It talks about that further on in, uh, what is it, verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn, right? So that melting away could be like literally everything so that there's nothing left. And it could, or it could be what is burned up is all that is dross, all that is impure because only righteousness is what remains. Either way, it's not a pretty picture. It's not something we're like, woohoo, excited about. Here's something that we're even less excited about in verse 10 is where he says, uh, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Some of us might be excited about that. But then you think about your own life and your own works that are done on earth, those being exposed. You know what he means by that? You know that, that actions speak louder than words, right? But sometimes actions are incredibly deceiving. This is what he means by exposure. That what was meant by everything that was done is going to be revealed. So let's just take an example. Hypothetical. Let's just say uh, I leave here I stop by the store on the way home, and I buy some chocolate for my wife, Mackenzie. At least 75% cacao. That's the threshold for her. And I know. I know my wife. I'm trying to be a good husband. So I get her some chocolate. I bring her some chocolate. You see me do this. What do you conclude? Oh, he loves his wife. He wants to serve her. He wants to bless her. Oh, he, he wants to show her how much he loves her. That might be true. This day would expose that. It also could be, though, because we're fighting. And I don't actually want to make peace and work it out. I want to purchase peace with chocolate. So it's not really about my love for her. It's about my desire for peace. It also could be that I'm feeling a bit randy and I want some attention. In which case, it would all also be about me and not about her. Could be that I'm insecure and I'm not really sure that she loves me and so I do this so that she'll say something that I really need to hear because I need some positive affirmation in my life. Which again, means it's about me, not her. How many of the things that we do on earth, even the good things that we do, are really about us? We're gonna be exposed These things will be exposed on this day. Not exactly something to look forward to, you might say, for many of us. Um, And you might be going, wait a minute, Josh, I've done my theology. Isn't our life fused with Christ so that we're judged by his works and not ours? Well, yes, thank you. You're You're a great theologian for saying that. You will. But I don't know if all y'all are Christians. I don't know if that's true. If your life is not fused to to Christ. Watch out. Your deeds are going to be exposed in this way. So, what's going to happen after all this burning up, purging, whatever you want to call it, deeds exposed? Well, he says it right here in verse uh, 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, this new heavens and new earth, um, they're talked about 
In the book of the Revelation, which is written by John, who was uh, another one of Peter's friends and one of the apostles, he says this in chapter 21 of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Once again, see the consistency there between what's going to happen. Pass away, it's going to be new heavens and new earth. And I saw, verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. If you know Jesus, if his life is inside of you, this is what you have to look forward to. So if you don't know Jesus, I would encourage you, you're missing out on something. <laughs> You're missing out on something serious. So I would encourage you to come to Jesus if you, if you haven't already. Isn't that amazing? A place where after all this chaos, all this burning, all this instability, it's replaced by a permanent melding of God's indwelling presence within us and around us and God himself with his own finger will reach out and wipe every tear from our eyes, there will be no mourning anymore. What a vision. That's amazing. So, that leaves us with our last thing. Uh, how do we prepare for judgment? Be prepared. That's one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew 24. Be ready. Stay awake. He says that several times. Well, there's, there's several things that, um, that Peter says here. If you, if you go back to verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? He says later on, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Further on, verse 17, You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What's going on here? What he's saying is, essentially in all these things, he's saying, bring your whole being into alignment with the truth of this. Bring yourself into alignment with this. Holiness and godliness. That's the first thing that he says. Now, these two, these two terms are just so unfortunately um, misunderstood, let's just say, in our time. Very often when we think of something like holiness or godliness, we tend to think of um, not fun, um, people who have um, certain objects in certain orifices of their body, um, don't know how to whoop it up or enjoy life here. That's what we tend to think of when we think of like holiness and godliness, like holier than no. There was a, there was a saying actually in the, 
in the early 1900s um, said a, a dancing foot and a praying knee don't grow on the same leg because uh, dancing is evil, right? So sometimes that's, that's the way things like holiness and godliness are used or understood in our time. Um, to clarify what these terms actually mean is ho- holiness really just means otherness. Godliness means being like God. Uh, and God is holy. God is other. He's, God's not like anything. Remember what I said earlier. God is not like anything. Not like any other thing around here on this earth. I don't know if you've ever had a logic class in high school or college or anything like that, but if you remember working through things called sets, you'd have like a column, you'd have, okay, things with eyebrows, things without eyebrows, and you have this list, things that have eyebrows, things that don't have eyebrows, or whatever, things that live in the ocean, things that live on land, whatever. So if, so if the category was things like God, there would be God, and then things not like God, everything else. Nothing else is like God. And because nothing else is like God, there's nothing that anything can do in this category to jump their way over here, right? Because they're not like God. Something only God possesses. Only God has holiness. Only God has it. The only way anybody gets a hold of it is by getting it from God. He has to to cross that boundary over, which he has done. What it means is to have holiness and godliness You need to have nearness to God. You need to be able to rub up against Him. And that's what He's given us in the Holy Spirit. Nearness to Him. That's how you have holiness and godliness. Now, a few other things to mention. He he goes down here when he talks about these blots without spot or blemish and at peace. He says that. Now, that, that would be a good thing for us to do. I don't know what the blot or blemish is for us, um, and being at peace would be a good thing for us to do, but he almost certainly means specifically to this audience that he's writing to, these false teachers in their midst, because he called them blots and blemishes back in chapter two, and they're disrupting the peace. So what he's really saying to them is, you need to clean house. You guys need to clean house, and do so graciously. I think deeper than all of this, deeper than all of this perhaps, is that their hearts need to be aligned with with, with God's heart when it comes to judgment. Hearts need to be aligned. So let's let's move into into something a little bit more practical for us. You might be here. I I know almost nobody in this room, so I don't know. You might be here and you might be in this scoffing. You might hear everything I'm saying. You're like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe I'm still here listening to this. It's 2022, you know, you might be, you might be saying that. Um, to that, I would just, I would just suggest that, um, you know, there, there are a few things in life that all humanity has sort of, I guess, agreed upon, you might say. Uh, wonderings. The first one is a, is a longing for justice, and the second one is a longing for permanence. And I would just, I would just, issue this challenge, you know. You might say, well, I like to believe in a God who doesn't judge. And I could say, I would like to believe that I could go up in a skating contest against Rodney Mullen or Tony Hawk and I would win. I'd love to imagine that. But we could get away from our imaginations and talk about what's true about God and and we can talk about this. So now that we've become friends by sharing our dreams and hopes and imaginations 
about God and other things. Let's get back to reality. We want justice. And at the end of your life, at the end of everyone's life, how many people do you imagine when they die, they have received exactly what they've put into life, right? The, the amount of suffering and misery that they put out into the world, they themselves suffered. Or the amount of good and selflessness and sacrifice for other people, they were adequately repaid for. Probably nobody has ever died with those scales exactly level. I would, I would put on offer. But let's, just, let's, let's take it a little more severe so you can see how, how this really works. World War II, Pacific Theater, or not Pacific Theater, European Theater. Over 27 million people died. Over 27 million people dead. Why? Because of the ambitions of a handful of men. And those guys who instigated and started all that misery, the death of 27 million people and all the misery and suffering and mourning and loss from all their friends and loved ones, all of that. You know what those guys got? You know what they had to do to pay for it in this life? Committed suicide or they were hanged. That evens it right out. Of course it doesn't. Doesn't that tick you off? Some people are just horrible and they don't get what's coming in this life. So if you're saying, oh, this is a ridiculous judgment day, like, don't you at least want, don't you at least want there to be some kind of like rectifying of what's happened on this earth? Don't you want that? You know, the ancient religions of the East, Buddhism and Hinduism, they were, they address this question. That's what the whole reincarnation thing is. Is at the end of everyone's life, you haven't, the scales aren't balanced, so you gotta hop on the wheel again and try it again. And hopefully, in enough lifetimes, you'll get those scales balanced enough to where you get out of the wheel. You reach enlightenment, and there you have your permanence. Permanence, which was the second thing that I was, that I was talking about. And this actually was the obsession of, of the ancient people in the West. They were obsessed with permanence, the Greeks especially. That's why they love their tragedies, right? If, if you guys remember your history, they love tragedies, Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, some of us would like to forget, but they love tragedies because they knew no matter how good life is, it's gonna change. Everything is subject to change. Everything is gonna change. Just close your eyes and imagine. Take a moment. Imagine the best your life has ever been. Maybe it was a moment. Maybe it was an hour. Maybe it was a week. Maybe it was a few years. I don't know. But unless that's right now, it's changed. And even if it is right now, it will change. I love my life. I've got a two and a half year old. I've got a one year old. I've got a loving wife. I love my life. Things are going awesome. They're great. And you know what? They're going to change. We're already pregnant. We got another, like we got another one on the way. So that's just going to screw things up. You know, like it's going to change. Do you not have this desire for there to be permanence? Permanence when things are good. This, it's what the Hebrews called shalom, where everything is as it should be. How are you answering that question, that, that desire for permanence, that desire for justice? How, how are you answering that? Okay, we'll leave it aside. Now, there also might be some people here who you've been hearing what I'm saying, and you're like, yeah, get them. <laughs> get them with judgment. You know, maybe you're Maybe you're, you know, you believe all this. You're like, finally, somebody's talking about it. And maybe you're looking around at our world and you're going, this whole thing is going somewhere that rhymes with heck. And this 
basket that you carry with your hands. You know, maybe, maybe you're in that camp and you're just like, yeah, good. Let's talk about judgment. Everyone's gonna have it coming. My challenge to you would be, you know, you may be right. You may be right this world going, is going to hell in a handbasket. You may be right that people are rebelling against God and it grieves him and angers him. Might be right about that. But have you aligned your heart with God's heart for what he talks about in verse nine? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Do you know that the very people you think are screwing up the world are the people God is longing to be patient with, to show mercy, to show grace. And if you're someone like me, you know what it's like to have been that person. Maybe you don't know what it's like to have been that person, but that's probably because we're not like God, so we can't see how deep down we are that person. We were just too cowardly to live it out. This is why God says, don't judge. Don't judge, because you don't actually know what's going on, even in your own heart. God's heart, God's desire, what he longs for is that all should come to repentance. And I know I have reformed friends who say, well, all doesn't really mean all. All means all the elect, so only some. I don't see that here. It doesn't say all the elect. Looks to me like it says all. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be universal salvation. I don't think the Bible teaches universal salvation. Not all will come to him. Not all will repent. But his desire is that all should. Is that your desire? Is that your desire? If so, could we continue with the patience? Could we love those that we think are destroying the world? So, if you're getting too zealous, there you go. There's your challenge. And you can email me, joshwilder.dorofhopepdx.org, if you don't like these challenges that I have for you. That's totally fine. There's a delete button on my email. Doesn't necessarily mean I'll use it, but I can. Finally, uh, you know, some, there might be some people here for whom uh, all this is just kind of like, you want to believe it, it's hard, but you're just struggling. You're struggling to believe it. I hope you guys know you, everyone puts their faith in something. You're, you're trusting in something. You're believing in something. Maybe it's hard because you're like, I need to know more. I need to understand more. And what that reveals is that you're really putting your faith in your mind. You're really putting your faith in your mind. What else could you be putting your faith in? Politics, science, pundits, self-help gurus? I don't know. What else might you be putting your, your faith in? You are putting it somewhere. I should hope, I, I would, that you would put that faith, that confidence, that trust in Jesus. That you would put that in, that, that trust, that commitment towards the God who waits. He has waited for you. He has withheld judgment, at least for now, to this moment, for you to hear this. For every one of us, it doesn't matter where you are really, it's the same thing. The first thing that we're gonna discover if judgment doesn't happen in our lifetime, when you die, the first thing that you discover is that this is all true. 
That's what you're going to learn. You're going to learn that this is all true. So what kind of life ought we to live in light of that? Once again, the holiness and godliness thing. Near to God. How do you do that? How do you do that, you might ask? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 15, he says, you can't do anything without me. It says like a, like a tree trying to bear fruit, if it's disconnected from the trunk, it won't do anything. So you have to remain in me. You have to be near enough to him to still go wow, to still wonder. We're back where we started. We have to wonder at the Lord. We have to be able to see every day, every moment, and I struggle with this, you guys. I struggle with this every day to be able to go, Lord, you're not, you haven't guaranteed me this entire day, but right now you've given me up till now, and that is your grace. Every day, every hour is a gift, is a sign, is a way that God is telling us, this is how gracious I am. This is how merciful I am. This is how patient I am. That's the way to prepare for this, is to constantly be going, Lord, wow me today. Give me gift of wonder at you.